podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Thanks for choosing this free Anfield Index podcast. If you'd prefer to listen to this or any of our other shows without adverts, then now's the time to check out Anfield Index Pro. With AI Pro, you can supercharge your entire listening experience. You'll not only get all of our podcasts without the ads, but you'll have them far faster with our quick publish feature available exclusively for subscribers. AI Pro also puts you in the heart of our sound studio with an option to listen to many of our shows live and interact with the podcasters in real time as the shows are recording. Upgrading couldn't be easier. AI Pro is available on all popular podcast platforms and we have our own apps for Apple and Android. Just head on over to AnfieldIndexPro.com and get started today. Hello and welcome to AI Scouted on Anfield Index Pro. I'm Dave Hendrick, joined by a man that I've had to pull out of the depths of depression after Unai Emery schooled, I tell you, schooled Julian Nagelsmann in the Champions League last night. Carl Matchett, how you feeling, buddy? I'm, I'm feeling pretty good, thanks, because you know what? <laughs> if they win, they go through and play us. So uh, Tactical masterclass. Second of all, Mr. Uh, as you tried to introduce, a minute ago, blah, 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 blah. Uh, he still has to play the away leg, and we all know that's where Mr. Yes. comes into his own. So don't hold your breath just yet. Yes, Bayern Munich 4, Villarreal 1 is a thing that will likely happen next week. Um, no, but seriously, it is... I don't know if you watched the game. Villarreal were very, very good and should be, I think, a little bit disappointed that it's only a 1-0 lead that they take into that second leg. They carved Bayern apart. Yeah, I, I only watched the highlights so far. I've not watched the whole game back yet because, you know, it happened less than 24 hours ago. <laughs> and, uh, you know, other work has to be done as well. But, um, it, look, it looks like both teams had chances, to be fair. I mean, for all the shots that they had and the opportunities they had, and they probably should have scored another goal, there were chances there for Bayern as well. You know, they yeah. probably would be a bit disappointed they didn't score one themselves. I think the fact that it's only 1-0, uh, obviously it could have been worse. I don't think they'll be massively bothered by it. I don't mean to be like, like disrespectful, but it is Bayern Munich. You know, they take any team back to their home stadium and they'll fancy their chances. So I don't think that it's, you know, it's nowhere near out of reach or anything like that. It's still one of the closer quarterfinals which are out there. So... Long, long way to go before uh, Villarreal can be confident even of going through. I think, as Unai himself rightly said after the match, to be fair, he is happy but cautious. I think that's probably Mm. the right tone to take. Yeah, I think so. But I thought from a Liverpool point of view, it made really interesting viewing. Because like you said, if Villarreal somehow come through, we get to play them. That's a much more favourable game than having two legs against Bayern. But if it is Bayern... This is now back-to-back rounds in which they've had the away leg first and looked really, really shaky defensively. Salzburg could have put three past them. Now, they did have a lot of chances in the game themselves and a lot of shots, but it was a very late-on goal that they got to tie it even. Last night, again, they did have their own chances, but they could have been three down before they woke up. That defence looked horrific. Upen Meccano looks like he won a raffle to be playing high-level football. If they get through, they play the away leg first in the semi-final, and that will be against us. And if we're on form, we really could do damage against them. 
Yeah, I mean, I don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves because, like I said, there's a long way to go in that one, and we have a job to do ourselves first, which we would expect that we will do. But uh, I think there is an element of, and I know you've spoken about this before, Julian Nagelsmann's one tendency to tinker and change what doesn't necessarily need to be changed, and two, the fact that he is as good as he is and as obviously good as he will be, he is still learning to an extent at this level as well. And we all remember, obviously, the first time he took his steps into the Champions League and it was against Liverpool and all the rest of it. So I, I don't think that this is anywhere near the finished product of what he or Bayern, his Bayern, will end up being. So I think there will be an opportunity there anyway when one, one yeah. very experienced manager at this level comes up against another. Even if the teams are well-matched, quite often you'll find that it is the uh, the more experienced, the more, I think, maybe settled and confident in his ways uh, manager who will triumph or at least have many many opportunities for the team to get that triumph so i would yeah. be i, I mean I, I said when the draw was made i'm i'm reasonably optimistic anyway i think this draw has worked out probably as well as it could have done for liverpool i agree i agree uh just briefly to comment on the other side obviously atleti went to war with city dug their trenches parked their buses lit the place on fire and got out of there with a 1-0 deficit, which I think they'll be happy enough to take back to Madrid and try and overturn any City fans thinking that the second leg will be any different than the first leg, will be in for a rude awakening. Um, But in the other game, obviously, Real Madrid gave Chelsea a bit of a doing. Another hat-trick for Benzema. I said it on two-footed today, Carl. I think it's time that we just recognize that right now Karim Benzema is the best player on planet earth yeah I mean like it's a pretty fluid title to be handing out to anyone isn't it it was quite clearly Salah earlier on in the season and as we come into the uh, knockout stage of the Champions League you would expect the very best players to put up this kind of showing on a regular basis in the biggest of games and Benzema is increasingly important for Real Madrid I think he is by a distance, the man who will decide whether they you know, go to the final or whatever this year. You can probably make a case for any of the midfielders to come out and be replaced, and the team's still overall pretty strong. And even Vinny Jr., you can see him come out, and they have plenty of other options to go in there and do a similar role. There's nobody else for Benzema, and he's really, really good at what he does. And he's he is one of those players who is getting far, far better with movement and everything, taking the place of... You know any need for speed that he did used to have. He was quite a very quick young player, like. But his movement now is so intelligent that he is a really big handful to deal with. It was it was a little worrying, I would say, for Chelsea watching Theo Silva try to not mark <laughs> him as such, but mark the spaces that you know Benzema is in. I mean, all three of the goals he just waltzes away from him with some ease. Yeah, it reminds me of. There was a period where Daniele De Rossi turned like 32, lost a bit of his speed. And it was almost like he entered this like trance-like Buddhist state where he just seemed to read the game so much better than everybody else. And even though he couldn't run as much, he was just always where he needed to be. And he became better for about 18 months, Benzema seems to be the same thing. Like you said, doesn't have the same speed as he had anymore. He's not as much in the penalty area of, you know, like a shuffle run one side, draw a defender, 
and then he's just spinning into space and it's almost become robotic from like he his body's doing it while he's in a trance and the ball just lands to him it, it's spectacular to watch and he was phenomenal last night absolutely phenomenal helped massively by that chelsea defense but it is what it is um and it could well be that what we thought was potentially an all english central uh, se- semi-final ends up being either an all spanish or City against Real. And City versus Real could be really interesting. So that's one to keep an eye on on the other side of the draw. Let's move to Liverpool-related things. News today from Paul Joyce in the Times. I want to give credit, though, to David Lynch, who was the one doing most of the legwork and most of the reporting on this. Liverpool have agreed terms to sign Fabio Carvalho for £7.7 million to join in the summer. No loan back. He will be joining and likely coming to play. What are your initial thoughts on the the signing, the player, and how do you think he might fit? I'm quite keen to see how he fits, to be honest, because he's one who I see at the minute as more, in terms of his style on the ball, as a, a number eight in our system. But you know, I didn't really think that... Genie Wijnaldum would be a number eight. I don't really think that Harvey Elliott necessarily, when he made his league debut, would be central midfield. So we'll see. It could be a bit further forward. It could be part of the plan to change systems around a little bit, or maybe he's going to be one of the players who flits across the forward line and plays as and where he's needed. I could definitely see the the case to be made with his movement and everything that he plays as a centre forward at times as well. And he's one of the ones who can both run in behind and drop deep to get involved in that build-up play. So we'll see there. Uh, the deal itself... I think it's probably the best all parties could hope for. Obviously important that we got the deal done anyway, having been so close to doing so in January. But I think also probably a good thing for for both Fulham and Liverpool. It doesn't have to go to tribunal and drag on for ages like Harvey Elliott's did. Yeah, exactly. The Harvey one went on a long time and uh, I think Liverpool were keen to avoid that because it's just a bit of a distraction. Um. I think like he he's just there's so much of his game that's Coutinho esque that it, it's it's very exciting whether he becomes Coutinho's level or not who knows, but he has been one of the best players in the championship this season, and he's 19 years of age and that's a very physical league. Obviously, we saw Harvey last season be one of the best players in that league too. So it, it does prove a, a good proving ground for players. I think he could be a number eight in our system on the right side, you know, because that number eight position is almost like a right winger, number 10 sort of thing as well when we have possession. So he could fit there. He can obviously play off the left. He could play off the right. I have a hard time seeing him as a nine just because he's so small. Like he's 5'7 and he's slightly built. I do worry that big, big, strong center backs would give him a desperately tough time when he tries to hold the ball up, they just volley him into the air. But who knows? And if we do tinker with the system and Klopp goes 4-2-3-1 next year, which, or, you know, even during just single games, doesn't have to be a regular thing, he's a ready-made option at the 10. Him and Harvey developing together now at the club will be fun. They they know each other very well from their time together at Fulham. So that'll be a fun one. Neil Jones tweeted this afternoon that Liverpool have been monitoring Glaison Bremer. Now, he did say it is likely that Bremer ends up at Inter Milan, but I thought it was interesting that he just outright came out and said, this is someone Liverpool were monitoring. If Liverpool are monitoring central defenders, it 
maybe hints at the fact that they expect one to leave. The obvious one to leave is Joe Gomez. What do you think of Gleison Bremer? Is he a fit for how Liverpool play? He's improved massively in the last 18 months from what he was previously. And we have been linked with him for a couple of years. What would your views on him be? And do you think he'd be the type to bring in if Joe left? I would still be a bit surprised if we did sign him, to be fair. I, he he is definitely playing better this year. But I think, again, in terms of like the numbers, and we mentioned him a few weeks ago, I think the switch to a back three is mm. playing to his strengths. Um, definitely very diligent and his concentration levels, I think, are much improved from when I first started to watch him like what, three years ago, probably, when we first started to be linked with him. Most of the rumours since then from like Italian media and uh, German media have been suggesting it's the fact that Klopp actually likes him, why we've kept tabs. So maybe that is the case, but age profile, price, you know, suggested around 20 to 30 million euros still. All of this doesn't massively strike me as likely. That's kind of the fee that we paid for Canate, and he's a lot younger, and he's mm. already you know shown that he can play Champions League sort of level. So unless it was quite a lot cheaper, I would be surprised, to be fair. Uh, I think that if, if Gomez does leave, I would expect one of two things, either a much younger central defender, like even younger than Canate is, who we can develop over a bit of a longer time frame, or else the other end of the scale, and you get your... That uh, short-term sort of 30-year-old yeah, for two years or something. Yeah, Kyriakos the Greek, that sort of addition, mm. who's just going to come in and, and fill the 17 starts that you want them for across cups and whatever else. Yeah, I, I agree completely. Like Bremer is two years or sorry, two months older than Joe Gomez. So if Joe's issue is I'm twenty-five, he's actually sorry, I'm wrong. He's a year and two months older than Joe Gomez. Joel turned twenty-five this year. Bremer has no, I'm an idiot. He is two months older than Joe Gomez. Never mind. He's two months older than Joe Gomez. See, if this was on Skype, I could get Guy to edit that out, but I can't because people are listening. So He's two months older than than Joe. If Joe's issue is, I'm 25, I don't want to sit on the bench for my prime years. Well, unfortunately for Mr. Bremer, he would be doing the same thing. Um, And I'd also worry a little bit. Like you said, he's moved into a back three. That's really how he's been able to develop. Putting him back into a back four, when he played there, there was a lot of positional errors. He was a little bit too rash. There was a little bit of lovering about him that I didn't like. Like that sort of big thundering, I'm going to go and win that ball no matter what sort of mindset. And more often than not, he'd charge out, miss the ball entirely and leave his defense exposed. His aerial numbers are great in Syria A, but we've seen other defenders like Ozan Kabak, whose aerial numbers in the Bundesliga were monstrous come over to the Premier League and be just about average in the air. Bremer's only 6'2", so he doesn't have that elite level height the way Matip and Virgil and Kanate do all 6'4", 6'5". So, you know, from an age profile, a physical profile, and the price that you mentioned, I just don't see that one. I could see him going to Inter. I could see him going to Spurs. I could see him being somebody Conte would like. Conte tried to sign him. Last uh, last January, not January gone, the January before, four Inter and couldn't get that deal done. So maybe Spurs bring him in to replace Eric Dyer in the middle of their back three. But uh, yeah, I, I don't see him as being 
won for us, but I will give him the credit that he has improved immensely over the last 18 months from where he was because you'd watch him play and it was almost like football was new to him at times. Um, a little bit like watching Upa Meccano at the moment. And I wonder if Upa Meccano might just belong in the middle of a back three rather than in a back four. Um, right, let's move just on. To add, just to add one last thing on Bremen. Hmm. Um, centre-backs in Europe's top five leagues who have won the most aerials per game. Uh, four of the top five are in the Premier League. None of them massively notable names. And Bremer is the other one. Ethan Pinnock, Tarkovsky, Liam Cooper, Shane Duffy and Bremer. Interesting company he keeps. Mm. Yeah, a lot of mediocre players there. Surprised Grant of... Hanley is not in the, uh, in the mix with that <laughs> well, fucking enormous head of his. I'm sorry, I did, I did specify its head as one, not just challenged and jumped for. Oh, I get you, I get you. Well, not, not so much jumped for. Not so much jumped <laughs> for now. He, he doesn't jump a whole lot, does... It's very hard to jump when you've got that size of a head in your shoulders. Um, so, uh, Mix2B, who is relatively um, reliable, gets a bit of info here. Uh, interesting from Neil Jones, Ori Bremer. Definitely someone we've tracked for a long time. A deal will be dependent on Matip Gomez's future. Gomez, the like, the one more likely to pursue a move. Um, I don't think there's any chance Joel leaves at this point. I thought he would have left two years ago, but he seems very happy now. He's first choice, so why would he leave and why would we let him leave? His partnership with Virgil is brilliant. He's not going to have the same type of value that Joe Gomez would have on the transfer market so i do think joel stays obviously verge stays and um ibu stays and if joe goes then i i think like you it's either someone who's 30 31 you know maybe has has won some stuff elsewhere and just wants to go hunting a few medals or it's somebody like an ibu type 1920 massive potential Gvardiol has been mentioned recently as someone we do like um, I don't know if he fits the profile because he's not the tallest, but he is good in the air and he is aggressive. We'll see. We'll see what happens. But uh, yeah, I don't think Bremer is one that we will end up buying. Um, moving on to the weekend, Carl. Liverpool face Manchester City in the Premier League at the Etihad. The first of two upcoming meetings with City. We play them in the FA Cup next weekend. This game is being tagged as the one for all the riches, the one that will decide the Premier League title. And, you know, when there's one point between the two teams and they are by far the two best teams in England and over the past four seasons, there's only one point to distinguish one team from the other. It does deserve, you know, all the hype, all the build-up. But there's three possible outcomes from this game. And personally, I feel like only a City win likely ends the title race because a four-point lead with seven games to go with their quality might just be a little bit too much to overcome. But if we win, it's only a two-point lead, so they'd only need us to slip up once. The other option, obviously, is a draw, which just leaves it as it was and you move forward. But what are your thoughts moving into this? Do you see this as more a can't-lose game? Or a must-win game for Liverpool? Uh, no, not not must-win. I, I do think that if we won, 
I mean, City obviously are a massively brilliant squad, and of course they could just go on and win their last, uh, what would it be, seven of the season. And they could do that, no problem, and then that would leave us with no margin for error. But if they did lose to Liverpool, or in fact, even if we draw with them, that's only, what, three wins out of the last six for them? That's like a lot of ground lost for them. I, I suppose they'll kind of feel in a way that if they draw... They have the upper hand. Well, they do have the upper hand, but they'll feel more as though it's closer to a win for them than a win for us, even though it's uh, Liverpool avoiding defeat away from home. Just because it's kept us at arm's length, it stopped our winning streak in the Premier League, mm. all of that kind of thing. So we've made up so much ground on them. I think that for Man City, it's must not lose, but for Liverpool, it's not must win. I think that there's still probably another game or two apiece where we won't necessarily win the match, even with the ridiculous run that Liverpool have been on, the form that we've shown and the consistency that we've shown. Even if we do beat Man City, I, th- I still think there will be another Premier League match we don't win between now and the end of the season. might just be one of those annoying ones where we just cannot finish or keep it as a worldie, or maybe we just turn up and play rubbish. Because you know what? It's really, really difficult to go from what was it, New Year's Day, we played Chelsea, or the day after New Year's Day, and since then we've won every single match. That's already absurd, but to go all the way through to the end of the season doing that would just be nonsense, to be honest. So I I still struggle to feel that we will do all of that. We will go through the whole season, win every game uh, from 2nd of January or whatever it was, onwards. So I don't think it would be the end if we do lose to be honest because just like Man City we could go on and win all the last seven or eight or whatever it is that we still have to play after that we could do that and if they draw a couple you're looking at goal difference and all the rest of it it's it's feasible but it would feel very very big for them to win and end our winning streak by beating them and sort of establishing that gap again and similarly if we beat them I honestly don't know that their mentality would be able to shift back straight away quickly enough, you know? It, it, you think of how Liverpool had to pick and choose sometimes when it was like, do we go for the Champions League and give up on trying to come third and just get the Champions League spots, you know, the top four spots? That kind of mm. might be a similar thing to them, you know? Do they sort of say, you know what, it's not quite happening for us in the league. We, we drew with Palace, we lost to uh, Spurs, was it? If they lose against Liverpool, yeah. do they then think... Let's just go and win the FA Cup and the Champions League. If we do that, that's still an unbelievable season. Yeah, it is. Of course it is. If they win the FA Cup and the Champions League, that's an incredible season. As it will be for us if all we end up with is a Champions League and the League Cup we already have in the bag. So, you know, you couldn't deny either team that either would be a great season. But let me ask you this, because Gags disagreed with me on this. But I look at our run-in. So we get we get City, that's fine. After that, we get United at home, Everton at home, Newcastle away, Spurs at home, Villa away, Southampton away, Wolves at home. Now I look at that and I think, right, Spurs at home is going to be difficult because they're a good team in, in decent form at the minute, but they're also massively inconsistent. So you just don't know what you're going to get from them. Outside of that, is Villa away our other hardest game? I mean, Wolves at home on the final day of the season, they might have nothing to play for. Is Villa away our hardest game, other than the Spurs one, after this? Because I don't look at United at home or Everton at home with any kind of fear. I think we go to Newcastle and Southampton and get the job done. So it's one of those Villa or or Wolves games for me. 
I would still put Everton there, especially with the context of this season. I would expect us to beat them, obviously, don't get me wrong, but they're going to make it a war, aren't they? Given the context of where they are, where we are, you know, if they avoid relegation and stop us winning the league in the same breath, that's like Lampard gets a statue straight away, despite how abysmal he's been so far. So I, I would still put that one there. I don't think Aston Villa would be a particularly notable game, to be perfectly honest. They're, they're already well, sort of... Stevie's going to roll over for us. No, 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 not at all. I just he's think that'll just be Stevie's a Stevie's going to roll over for us because he owes us. He <laughs> okay, owes fine, us for 2013-14. You owe us, Stephen Gerrard. I, I think that that is just going to be a normal game, no different to like, the Southampton one the week after. To be honest, they they are already kind of fallen away, and you can see that there's a few maybe changes that he's making to have a look at a couple of players for next season, all the rest of it. You know, they, they're no danger of. European football or relegation. They're mid-table. They're, mm. you know, they've had a good run since he came in, but we know that those mid-table teams sometimes they're not that much to play for. The uh, on the beach stereotype kind of comes out, doesn't it? I wouldn't be surprised if it's so, a bit like that by the time we play them. Right, right. So you're saying that Liverpool's two toughest games are Everton at home because of the context, not because they're any good, because obviously they're crap, and yeah. the Spurs game. Are we agreed on that? Uh, and United, yeah. Right, so those three. Right. Would you agree or disagree that those games are not as difficult as Wolves away or West Ham away? Wolves away when they're still in the mix for Europe and West Ham away who will be in the mix for Europe. City's other games then are Brighton at home, Leeds away, Watford home, Newcastle home. And Villa at home on the last day. I'm kind of writing all of them off as game City will win. But I genuinely think I would rather be playing United, Everton and Spurs at home than having to go to either Wolves, who gave City a very difficult game earlier this season and got robbed by a ridiculous penalty and have a good home record against good clubs. And West Ham, who've been really good at home this season. I, I think they have a harder. Easier. I think we have a harder overall run, but they have the two hardest games that I could see them dropping points in. I agree with the Wolves one. I do think that that's a really difficult one. Again, it depends on. I don't think there's a date set for it yet. Is there? Not yet. No, it was. It was no, meant it's... to be the weekend of the cup semi final. Yeah, so I think again that one probably will depend on the context of when it's played and what Wolves are doing at the time. To be honest, I think if you know if Wolves still have got a chance of getting top six or something like that, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely, because first and foremost, try to not lose. That's how he's uh, sort of built the team, very, very defensively solid and make sure they don't make any mistakes, that kind of thing, first of all. And we know Man City tend to get a little bit frustrated against teams like that. So I do think that that one will be difficult. Uh, I don't know that it's more difficult than ours overall, um, but I think that the teams that we have to play, which are our hardest teams, are more suited for us in terms of the match style and how it generally tends to play out than Man City's ones are for them and their style. If that makes yeah, sense. Yeah, I think that that's fair because Wolves will try and frustrate them and, you know, try and get them into the point where they start. Because the thing with City is, City don't really have anything resembling a plan B. It's just more of plan A with different players. And it's all about that sort of slow, methodical build-up, 
and trying to just pressure a team into a mistake by doing the same things over and over and over again. So if a team is diligent defensively, and we've seen a couple do it this season, Southampton and Palace notably of late, City do tend to get quite frustrated and you end up with, you know, De Bruyne or Canseo lashing shots in from 25 yards. And every so often one of them will find the net, but more often than not, they don't. I think that Wolves game is a, a very difficult one for City. I think that West Ham game is a very difficult one for City. And I think they're both much better teams than anyone that we're going to face other than Tottenham. I, I think they're both, they're better coached teams than United. United have more talented players. But I just think they have two really, really tricky games to overcome. So even a draw here, I don't think clinches the title for them because I think they'll drop points in one or both of those games. Whereas if we draw, I could see us running the table after that quite easily because I think our games are more straightforward and the two games we have at home off the back of the cup game, United and then um, and then Everton are games that, yes, they could be difficult, but we could also go out and beat them both 5-0. I don't see any, I don't see any world in which City beat Wolves or West Ham 5-0. No, probably not. not. Just on Everton, so I don't know who Simon Dobson is. Um, Everton board expected to hold emergency meeting over the future of Frank Lampard. No decision made yet. Could they actually sack him? I don't know where that's come from, to be honest. So that could just be a random Twitter thing. Hopefully, hopefully. We don't want Frank out. We're Lampard in on this podcast. Anyway, sorry, I distracted you. That's fine, because I can't remember what I was talking about now. Oh, good. Right, well, let's move on. Let's move on to this idea of Liverpool playing this weekend and Liverpool playing City again next weekend. We... We are in a good position in the Champions League where we have a 3-1 advantage going home against a team that defensively aren't great and we should be able to create chances against and beat in the second leg, even if Jürgen shuffles the deck a little bit for that one and leaves certain players out, which means he can go full strength this weekend. City have, as journalists continue to tell us, a smaller squad than us with less options, as Pep has cried about all season long. They have an absolutely horrible game coming up on Wednesday night against Atleti. Do you think, does that play into Pep's thinking here? Does he maybe go with a team that's not quite what he would view as his best eleven? knowing that that Champions League game is around the corner? Or do you think he just goes best 11 in both games and, you know, sees what happens from there? I mean, it's Pep, so I'm not going to profess to know what he's going to think and do <laughs> because, uh, honestly, it could be Claudio Bravo re-signed to play central midfield or something like that, you know? But basically, I would suggest it doesn't matter in the slightest and this is what you have your strongest team for. They can play twice in four or five days, they can play three times in a week if they need to. After that, yeah, there's an increased risk of injury and fatigue and all the rest of it. But basically, when the biggest games come along, those best players, they want to be playing in them. 
So if he thinks that the best team to get past Liverpool is the same one as to get past Atletico Madrid, he'll play the same 11. I, I'm not sure it would be exactly the same 11, but because obviously we defend in a very, very different way to Atletico, if you hadn't noticed anybody. Um, but basically, <laughs> yes, I, I think that it will be full strength, full strength, as much as he's able to, because obviously one particularly big player is not going to be there. Yes, so Ruben Diaz is injured. Um, and that obviously affects their defence. It means John Stones will start le- next to Laporte. He does have some interesting decisions to make. So on the City team, I'm expecting Ederson in goal. I expect that Kyle Walker comes back in at right back, having been suspended in midweek. I'm expecting Joe Cancelo at left back, but I do wonder if maybe he tries Ake there just for a more defensive presence against Salah because Salah rinsed Cancelo in the first game this season. And even though he's maybe in a bit of a dip at the minute, he's still getting into the right positions. He's still able to cause defenders problems. And unlike the last two games where he was up against really quick, really dogged left backs, this game against Jao Canseo, he is not that. He's not the quickest player in the world. He's not slow, but he's not lightning quick. And he's not a particularly good defender. So is there any possibility that we see Nathan Aki stay in at left back? Yeah, possibly so. I think that... I think that there's a good chance we do see him play and some sort of... Pep shift comes about where they basically have five off the ball. Uh, I don't know why. They, he hasn't done it in a while. It's just something that comes into my mind that he'll want. Um, oh, God. Carl Walker. Goodness me. Couldn't think of his name there for a minute. Carl Walker, I expect to be playing. And therefore, where does Jacques Cancelo go if he's not going to be left back? So whether there'll be some sort of you know switched around formation or there will be just you know listed as a central midfield. Yes, exactly. Like Cancelo as a centre mid, but who drops into left back, you know, that kind of a that kind of a change around. I, I expect Cancelo to start and I expect Carl mm. Walker to start. So whether or not Ake does as well, I think will depend on if Pep does a tactical shift. If not, then no. I think he'll go for Cancelo again and go on inside on that right foot to try and stop Salah because obviously we have to Acknowledge Salah hasn't been in top form either. Mm, no, that's very fair. I do expect that he just goes back for Walker, Canseo, Stones and Laporte in the middle. And I do think that leaves potential for Salah to cause them trouble. We'll get to Salah later. In midfield then, De Bruyne, you th- you'd expect, will start. Rodri, I expect, will start. But then he's got a decision in that third midfield role. Does he go Gundogan? for a bit more control? Does he go Bernardo Silva for a bit more attacking intent? Though, Gundogan offers more in terms of goals than than Bernardo. So there's there's merits to both of them. Who do you think he'll pick as that third midfielder? Bernardo Silva, without a shadow of a doubt. And and Gundogan coming off the bench, potentially? Yeah, yeah. Okay. So I did wonder if maybe he'd go Bernardo on the right of his front three and have him drop into midfield. Um, but Riyad Mahrez has been in quite good form since Christmas and he scored a number of goals for them. So Mahrez, Foden and Grealish up front? 
Uh, Foden definitely. I wonder whether you might leave Sterling in instead of Grealish just for the you know, the pace and the counter attack and trying to get behind Trent that kind of thing. Mm. Um, switches a play from De Bruyne and attacking the far post when De Bruyne gets to the sort of the right side and tries to do the uh, crosses in from that side maybe. But I don't think it matters too much to be fair. I think it's going to be pretty much the same build up play, isn't it? Whether it's Sterling, whether it's Grealish, or whether it's Gabriel Jesus on one side or Mares, you know. Uh, I'd, the only one I'd say who is a, in my eyes, a definite starter in that front three is Foden. Yeah, I think that's very fair. I do think it's very fair, and he's got other options in those in both wide roles. Like I said, he could go Bernardo, he could go Mares, he could go Sterling on the right, he could go Gabi Jesus, like you said, on the left. He can go Sterling, or he can go with Grealish. Um, Grealish just hasn't been impressive this season, and maybe. Maybe he just sits out for this one and is an option off the bench. Um, but yeah, as as Willology says, he played the false nine at Anfield, Grealish did, and was absolutely awful. Might as well have just stayed at home in Birmingham. Never mind going to Manchester or coming to Anfield. He might as well just stayed in Birmingham, combing his hair. Um, whatever we face, it's going to be a really strong team. And they're they're worthy of a lot of respect because they have shown this season and last, that they are a very good team. They can score goals if they're given opportunities. But there isn't, other than Sterling when he's on form, there isn't really anyone in that group who really scares you as a goal threat, in my view. Now, maybe you feel differently. But, you know, when you think back a few years ago when they had Sané and they had Aguero, and and De Bruyne was younger and he was in better shape. You were always very... I, I used to be terrified of playing against them because they were just absolutely horrible when they'd open things up and really start to go through the gears. This City team doesn't really scare me that much. But outside of Sterling, do you think, is there a real goal threat there? I, I, I agree with what you're saying, to be honest. I mean, there they used to be everybody capable of scoring and now i feel this isn't you know any data or anything it's just what i see that it's more like everybody can create that's what it feels like to me and i think that that there's there's merit to that because it does mean that you you can't really just stop the source everybody can create chances and they are good at sharing goals around you know as much as they don't have a fixed a fixed point of the goal scoring they rarely fail to score so it, it has worked pretty well for them, let's be honest. They still hardly lose a game. They still win the vast majority of them. They're still on to win three trophies themselves. So I don't think that there's a single danger point. But I think that that, as a result, probably makes them more difficult to definitely stop. Because I still get mm. really worried every time De Bruyne picks up the ball 30 yards out because I know they can ping it top corner or he can cross it or he can dribble past someone and play a through ball, or he can loft it over the top of your whole defence. You know, they, they can come from anywhere, and that's a big part of the reason why, for example, last year, uh, Ilkay Gundogan had such massive success just as a, a late runner into the box, as a, you know an extra body who you wouldn't expect to be there and so on, and he became like this really amazing goal threat for them. I think probably Mares is the best finisher they've got, but I don't find him always quite as consistent as some of the others in you know, when he chooses to take the shot and where he chooses to take the shot from. Yeah, I think that's fair. I think that's a fair analysis. And, and look, De Bruyne is still... 
he's still an unbelievable footballer. And he can put the ball wherever he wants with minimal effort. He is just sensational. So he is one that we'll have to be really diligent against. Looking at the Liverpool team then, in midweek, Jurgen, I think, shocked everybody by playing Thiago with Fabinho and Naby as his midfield and leaving his captain out of the team. For this game, I think Matip comes in in defence for Kanate. Though Kanate did very well in midweek, I still think Joel will start this one. So, Alisson, Trent, Joel, Virgil, Robbo, would you agree with that? Yes, assuming no injuries in the build-up. Right, in midfield then, on our last podcast, you said, or you hinted mm. at, mm. thinking that Henderson might not start this game. I did. Were you thinking it would be Naby, Fabinho and Thiago? Yeah, I thought this was And the game has your view changed on that? I thought this was going to be the game you brought it in for. Um, so yes, I don't expect it to start two games in a row. But do you think perhaps could the midweek game have been like a dry run for this one? Might that have been his thinking to let's see what this midfield can do and then we'll we'll go again against City if it works. And it did work for the majority of the time they were on the pitch together. It well, it did in in several regards, but I would say the one it probably didn't is that there were too many big spaces that they passed through very, very quickly. And I would say that that's probably one thing that Klopp wouldn't want, especially against Man City, with how they can be in transition play and with how they have you know really good movement out of the front line, dropping deep to receive the ball between the lines. I think that that, what, four or five times maybe that they passed through, not always to create great danger, but they still did pass through very, very quickly from let's say, 30 yards outside their penalty box to more or less the same distance outside our penalty box. And that kind of space there is where City are, I think, most dangerous before they play that final pass into the channel and then somebody cuts it back and somebody taps it in with three minutes to go or whatever. That's the thing that I don't like leaving open against Man City. And I I wouldn't Does be Does Jordan devastated. Henderson solve that problem, though? Um... Given he's not alone, worse no. off the ball and defensively than either Naby or Thiago. Yeah, but I don't, I don't think it's just about that though. I, th- I think it's, you know, partly it's again which I always refer to familiarity, and it was a first starting, uh, first starting opportunity for that three to play with each other, and you know maybe that is just a part of it. Naturally, I think whoever starts will be a little bit more compact, a little bit less inclined to mm. break forwards. So much because we're playing Man City. I mean, like some of the positions that became penalty box, both the headers that he missed and when the ball didn't come to him were really, really good. But regardless of whether it's him or Henderson or Harvey Elliott or anybody at all, I'd be really surprised if they took that position up once in the first well, you hour. Wait, of the you pitch wait and you see Jordan Manchester. decide he's playing right wing. <laughs> no, no. But I'm talking about the ones out there for no reason at all. No, I'm talking about the ones where he breaks into the box and just got between the two centre backs and got himself into that, you know, the Oxley Chamberlain or the Gino and Alden role when they were playing that kind of role for us the season before. Um, those ones, I would not expect to see those runs too often against Man City. Uh, we generally tend to be a little bit more conservative for obvious reasons. I don't know that he solves it, but I just think that it's the familiarity. I think in the biggest of games, most teams tend to revert to 
what they feel is most uh, safe is not quite the word, but tried and tested. Yeah, I mean, tried and tested that's gives the weird. impression that it's it succeeds and it's not always the case. Is it? Yeah, <laughs> I didn't say no, but that's, no, but I'm agreeing with you. That I'm making that point that it doesn't necessarily mean that it works. But we went back all the time to the Milner Henderson Wijnaldum midfield, for example, because we knew what it would do and what it would not do. Mm. You know, we, we did it through familiarity. When it was when Emre Chan had to play in defence or he was injured or anything else, that was what we went back to because we knew it had worked beforehand or we knew if it didn't work exactly the way we wanted to, we knew what the deficiencies would be. And I wonder whether that is you know, almost a case of better the devil you know in, in the very biggest of games and at least you know how certain people are going to respond and you know where one or two things you might have to improve on are and therefore make allowances for that elsewhere, whether that's Trent not getting as high up the pitch or Fabinho slightly tilting to the right, whatever it is, you know. I, I wouldn't be surprised if it goes back to that. I would be quite happy if it was catering alongside Diago again because I do think that they have the best capacity to exploit Man City's midfield if we talk about the other side of the equation. But I would be... I, I would be about 70% sure Henderson comes back in now. Ali asks an interesting question. Does Bobby solve that problem by, you know, playing as the nine and harassing Rodri? Because when Bobby came on at the weekend, or sorry, in midweek, it was Bobby who solved that sort of problem for us. It was Bobby who put a stop to them playing through us. We lost all sense of shape in midfield, but Bobby stopped them being able to play through us so easily. But I do wonder if maybe... He goes with Bobby as the nine if he's going to play those two again in midfield, uh, which I am very hopeful that that he will. Um, so you think Henderson? I, I'm hoping for Naby, but yeah, I do. I do probably think it will be. Well, I, I, I assume it's you're, you're thinking Henderson, Fabinho, Thiago, rather than Henderson, Fabinho, Naby. Yeah, yeah, I think with yeah. Naby playing, you know, more or less the full game. And the last couple of games as well, if you look against Watford, it was Fabinho got left out to start with. And then against uh, Benfica, obviously, it was Henderson. So you could argue that this uh, pattern would suggest now it's Thiago's turn to come out. But Thiago's also been substituted in both games, so he's not played the full 90. True, true. Um, right, in attack, would you play Bobby as the nine or do you go yes. Mane or Jota? No, nope. nope. Bobby. Bobby, yeah. I, see, I, I'm I, think exactly Bobby been, I, I think he's been really good the last two games. Like, obviously, from the start against Watford and off the bench um, in the other game. And I think he's been very, very good in those, both of them. Mm, see, I'm the same. I, I think it has to be him. Left side of the attack, you've got three options. Luis Diaz, Sadio Mane, or Diogo Jota. Who do you pick? When did left side of forward become our position of most strength and depth? It's a wonderful thing, isn't it? Just three random lads rocking up from different parts of the world to terrorise right backs from whatever parts of the world they crawled out from. It's incredible. I mean, this used to be like we had one player and that was Sadio Mane. And if he didn't play, we were a completely different side. And And honestly, now I'm not sure who I would pick to start. I think Diaz is comfortably the most informed player of the three. Hmm. Jota, I can make the easiest case for being sub because I think he offers the least in build-up play. He offers loads off the ball. 
it's not always hugely positive. I mean, he does, you know, but, a few silly but fouls. But he maybe offers the best goal threat off the bench as well, doesn't Exactly, he? exactly that. He offers the most energy and potential explosive impact off the bench of the three. And that's why he's the easiest case to say he should be subbed to start with. So, I find, I, I find it difficult to think that Mane gets off a game of this magnitude. So, I will say him, even though I do think Diaz is most in one forward of any of the five. Mm. Yeah, I think so as well. I think Diaz just looks like he's building up towards something special. However, if Diaz starts on the left-hand side, is there a case, I'm not saying there is, but is there a case that Sadio should start on the right? And, and I know it's a massive game, so it's very unlikely, but is there a case to start Sadio on the right and Salah from the bench? And hope that when you bring him on on 60, he is so full of anger and rage and injustice at everything that's happened to him over the last couple of months. All the bullshit, all the media rumors, Fabrizio Romano making money off his name, journalists running left, right and centre, his own agent been a dickhead. The fact that he lost the AFCON and didn't get to take a penalty in the final. The fact that he's not going to the World Cup and he missed his penalty because three quarters of Senegal with shining lasers in his eye, and now he's been dropped for the big game. Is there a case that maybe that's a good approach? <laughs> There's a case for it. There's definitely a question to be had over this, at least a conversation. And, and I did say this on Raw, and I wrote the article after the Benfica match on the exact same thing. If it was any other game, I don't think there would be a case. Because... Cops management style, Salah's overall ability, you know, it'll click at some point. So you just let him play through it most of the time. But for this game, there is. There is, at the very least, you have to consider all the options. Luckily, we don't have to. I mean, we will do because we want to, but we don't have to. But Klopp does. And he has really mm. got to be able to weigh up not just uh, how Salah is doing in terms of on the training pitch, form, touch, is he looking really sharp there and all the rest of it, but how he would react. You know, we saw a few times Gini Wijnaldum left on the bench for the biggest of games, bring him on and he's fuming and he comes on and he scores a goal mm. or he plays really well, he bats people all over the shop. Similarly, we have seen players do the complete opposite, come off the bench and stroll about sulking, hardly putting in any effort. I very, very much doubt that would be the case for Mohamed Salah, but there's somewhere in between as well, obviously. You're not just going to get one or the other. And are we going to get enough of one of them to justify leaving a player of that quality on the bench? Or in a game of this magnitude where the season could hinge on it, is he giving enough to justify putting him in the side where we might only get two chances? And if they fall his way and he's, you know, if he's not really looked great, if he's not looked too sharp, if his touch has been off in training, do you want them falling to him? this time at this exact moment that's what it comes down to and that's that's why Jürgen can get paid the big money and we don't yeah that's why he gets paid the 12 million a year or whatever it is i do wonder if there's also a case from a defensive point of view to potentially start mané against canseo because mané will be more diligent in terms of tracking him than than sala would but i it, it it's so hard to suggest leaving Salah out because he's he's so good and he's been so incredible for us since the day he arrived. And 
like Willology says there, when Salah didn't start at the Emirates, that right-hand side looked really ropey. Like, And if it's going to be Henderson on the right, like a Henderson-Jota right side from an on-ball point of view is, is torturous. That's the ball being given away endlessly. So I, I, I think it has to be Salah. I, I'd like to see Salah Bobby Diaz but I can definitely see the case for Salah, Bobby, Mane. And I wonder as well with Mane, you know, if you leave him on the bench, maybe you get him coming on absolutely furious at the world. The problem with Sadio is that when he's absolutely furious at the world, his his foot turns into a curb and he can't really control the ball and he gets so worked up, he starts lashing out at defenders and dragging them down to the ground. So, yeah, we'll wait and see. Klopp has multiple, multiple big decisions to make. I think there's decisions we made across the front three, the right side of the midfield, and a small decision at right side centre-back, though I do think it's an easy enough one to just plop Joel Matip back into the team and say to Ibu, you get Benfica in midweek, don't worry. Um, right, we may as well do predictions and get finished. What is your prediction for the game? Gabby 1-0 Liverpool. Oh, Yes. Oh, I'd love it. Like a, a late no. Would you prefer a late winner or we score early and then almost shithouse our way, countering them to death and scaring them but not scoring again, but always having their fans like right on the edge of their seat because they've had to open up, they've had to come at us, we have a lead, and they've got we've got Salah and Mane or Salah and Diaz or Mane and Diaz tearing at them on the counter with Trent's long balls. Which would you prefer? Early goal, shithouse your way to the win, but keep their fans on the verge of heart attacks, or a late goal that just crushes the life out of them? I was just about to say, why are my two choices? Do you want a five-minute heart attack or an 85-minute heart attack? Neither of these sound appealing. Um, (laughs) Oh, God. For the emotion and the occasion and what it might do to their morale and spirit for the title race as a whole, a late winner would be, I think, would do the most damage to them and be the most uplifting for Liverpool. For... It could, or it could also cause that sort of emotional dump for Liverpool where they come out really flat. Now, luckily, there's no league game for the next two games. It's Benfica in the week we can afford a 1-0 defeat there and we'll still go through and then City next weekend. But I'm just thinking back to the 13th of April, 2014, where Coutinho scores in the 78th minute. We go two up through Sterling and Skirtle. They fight back. Silva scores. Glenn Johnson does a Glenn Johnson thing. And then Coutinho scores that late goal. Now, it's not, it's not a last-minute winner, but it was a late winner. Mm. And it felt like that really did give us a big boost. But we went out against Norwich the following week, and though we scored two early goals, we did kind of fall apart in the second half in that game as if we lost all energy. And I, I'd just be worried about losing that. Like Ali says, I would a 3-0 win would be lovely. Get a nice early goal, get a second just before half-time, a third just after the break, and then just sort of relax and see our way through. But I, I don't... Stranger I mean, things have happened. Yeah, yeah, they have. Um, 
I, I, I would be absolutely open to being woefully wrong here and we win 6-0 very comfortably, right? I just don't think it's going to be on the card. So, uh, it doesn't matter, does it? Let's be honest. It doesn't matter. If we win this game, it doesn't matter how it happens. It can be a, a really boring 64th minute in off Jao Cancelo's left bum cheek. It doesn't make any difference whatsoever. It, as long as we get this win, that is huge for Liverpool. I think You know what the, the perfect one would be, though? Questionable late penalty. Questionable late penalty. And just leave social media absolutely up in arms that VAR have done it again for Liverpool. A Fabinho top corner blaster in the last minute. I don't yeah. mind the sound of that. Look, honestly, the, anything could happen in this kind of game because it's so so much tension and stress and all the rest of it. We could see like a red card for any of the centre-backs within five minutes and the game is completely changed, you know? Remember the... Mm. Sadio Mane on Aderson's head, for example, and the whole thing changed. We we were really, really good before that, and then that whole game changed. So anything can happen along those lines. The one that you mentioned, the Coutinho game, yeah, that was uh, it was pretty epic, but it was nerve-wracking as well that we could concede another two or three goals after that. But this is a really, really different side in terms of the you know the mentality and the makeup of it and the the way we approach matches and the next game against Norwich as well. You know, we we are a very, very different side these days. I think there is more chance of Liverpool scoring early and defending the game out than there is of Man City scoring early in the game out. Uh, defending the Agreed. game out. That's Agreed. the only thing I would say. If they do score, I would expect us to at least come very, very close to an equaliser, but probably go on and get one. But I will settle for anything at all. Yeah. Yeah, look, any win here is a good win. I am going to go for a 2-0. I'm going to go for us to score early, that we catch them and score early, and then they have to open up. And I don't think they're particularly good at playing from behind because I don't think they really have the gears to go through the way they used to have. They don't have that Leroy Sané kind of player who could just split a game open for them. They don't have that poacher in Aguero. I don't think Sterling and De Bruyne are the players now they were a couple of years ago. So I think we score. They have to open up. They get a little bit sloppy. They get a little bit frustrated. And we catch them on a counter with a Trent ball to Diaz. And Diaz goes run, runs up, draws the keeper, and then does that horrible, shitty FIFA goal where he just slides a two up to one side. And Bobby taps home takes the shirt off, throws it up in the air, and everybody's happy except for that gentleman who old King Cole and Dell have put in the chat, having tantrums, waving fingers around, putting hands to bald heads. Sorry, Pep, this isn't going to be your weekend. We'll leave it there. Anything you want to talking, add? Or... I thought you were talking about Trev. Poor Trev. That's, that's just uncalled for. Listen, after, after, you, you had to be suspended for half a podcast now last week after what you said about Drinkle and I what you said about Albie Moreno, which upset Drinkle. So, you know, you're on a disciplinary warning now. You're on a, a, a what, do, what do you call it? A, a, a PIP? Suspension Performance break. improvement plan. That's what you're on. <laughs> Performance improvement plan. I got have one you got any writing coming out? Oh, a question. Yeah, I have. I have, but let's stick to the podcast this time. I've got a question for you before we, we go. This is one that I've been asked already by someone else and is, I think, probably doing the rounds on social media already. As a Liverpool supporter, would you, if offered right now, take a draw? 
Yes. Horrible answer. I, I would because, I, I, as I said earlier, I think our running is easier to navigate and I can see us winning our remaining seven games. If we draw this one, I can see us winning our last seven. Like, I could see us winning this one and then dropping points somewhere else. So it's the same points tally the whole way along. But I can see us drawing this and winning our last seven. I think they're going to drop points in either that Wolves game or the West Ham game. So I would take a draw because I don't think that puts a nail in our coffin. Defeat does. But I think win or draw, I think we're still going to have to, you know, we're still going to have to be really diligent the rest of the way. But I would take a draw because I do think they'll, they'll drop points somewhere. I think they'll drop points Wolves or West Ham. Or maybe Stevie on the last day of the season does us a favour. Coutinho, last minute, 35 <laughs> yards out, free kick, top corner, whips off the Villa jersey, and he's in Liverpool red again. Gerard whips off whatever horrible, horrible Aston Villa regalia that he's wearing, and he's in Liverpool red, and the two of them embrace. Be beautiful. Beautiful. Um, <laughs> right, have you got anything coming out this week that you want people to know about? European stuff, and there'll be some for neither before or after the game. I'm not sure yet. Cool. There you go. Follow Carl on Twitter at Carl Matchett. Read his work on the Independent, and sometimes when he has time on This Is Anfield. Follow Guy Drinkle at Guy Drinkle. Listen to the Two Footed Podcast every day at 4 p.m. and the Daily Red every day around lunchtime. We'll see you next time. Bye bye. We hope you enjoyed listening to this Anfield Index show. Please be sure to subscribe to our channel so future podcasts find their way to your device automatically. There's nothing quite like fan engagement, and we'd love to know what you think of anything discussed on this show. The best way to get in touch is over on our free Discord community, where both podcasters and listeners debate the hottest LFC topics 24-7. Sign up free now at anfieldindex.com forward slash discord. You won't regret it. You can also follow us on Twitter at Anfield Index. And find us on Facebook by searching for Anfield Index. Oh, and before you go, we'd love it if you could leave us a five-star review on your favourite podcast app. It only takes a couple of seconds, and it means the world to the people who create these free shows. Sports Social Podcast Network.